For many decades, Indigenous women and girls across Canada have disappeared, suffered violence, or been killed, and our justice system has failed them. Sadly, this is not simply a relic of our past. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking on June 3, 2019 at a press conference to commemorate a final report of a three-year inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and Two-Spirit people in Canada. Chief Commissioner of the National Inquiry, Marion Buller, summarizes the findings. The significant, persistent and deliberate pattern of systemic racial and gendered human and Indigenous rights violations and abuses is the cause of the disappearances, murders and violence. And this is genocide. After years of failed law enforcement investigations and inconclusive data on Indigenous women and girls, it was an unprecedented measure to label the systemic violence as a genocide in a country that has a reputation for being peaceful. The report states that up to 4,000 Indigenous women and girls have been murdered in Canada in the last 50 years, but adds the caveat that the exact number may never be known. For many, the inquiry was only a first step. Years of strained and community relations and mistreatment of Inuit, Métis, Aboriginal and Indigenous Canadians on various fronts, such as forced education, the foster care system, lack of essential resources, and now neglecting a genocide, equals frustration and tension. As demonstrated here, when journalists were probing a panel of Indigenous activists to speak on the progress Justin Trudeau has made for Indigenous Canadians over previous federal governments. And I'm telling you, and I'm telling you right now, there has been 524 years of holistic genocide on Turtle Island. We're the ones that are dying. It's not you that is dying. None of your governments have clean hands. All your governments... All of your governments have blood on their hands. None of you are different. You haven't changed because you haven't started your healing journeys. The moment that we have our voice in our backbone, you, you want to shut us down. And you think you have, you're privileged to disrespect us. The moment we tell you because of your colonial mindset and your colonial way of being, your white privilege, your white fragility, you can't take our truth. Less than six months after Canada's inquiry finished, the U.S. started their own initiative. With my order today, we're launching Operation Lady Justice, an interagency task force led by Attorney General Barr and Secretary Bernhardt to develop an aggressive government-wide strategy to end this terrible situation. Melanie Benjamin Indigo. And it is my honor, my privilege to be here today with the signing because we cannot have this happening anymore. So with federal governments in Canada and the U.S. finally taking some initiative to address the genocide of Indigenous women, what role do journalists play in reporting on this? This episode examines how coverage has been both positive and negative and what news organisations need to do in order to improve the current depictions of Indigenous people. 
Welcome to the Know How Podcast special five-part series, Reporting Injustice. This is a series where we look at some of the key stories in recent years that were turning points in how we saw some fundamental issues. We talk to the journalists who uncovered them about their struggles to bring these stories to public view. And we speak to experts who explain how these reports altered the way society perceived pressing matters of race, class and sexism. From Windrush to Bill Cosby, Grenfell to missing and murdered Indigenous women, Reporting Injustice looks at the stories behind the stories. I use the word poverty porn a lot. And so this is like the number one thing you see when mainstream media gets it wrong, right? Which is painting the worst case scenario, the, the, the most horrible, awful situation going on. Um, and, and really starting that first paragraph with the like, and the wind swept, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just this nasty picture of, you know, the miserable Native America. Examining news coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous women for radio producer Monica Brain begins with explaining how most coverage of Indigenous people is stereotypical and surfaced. Brain says she tries to tell more authentic stories through her platform. I'm the senior producer of the radio show Native America Calling. We're a live call-in radio show. We're on um, about 70 stations in the U.S., mostly tribal and community radio stations. And uh, we've been on the air for 25 years. Sometimes it just feels like shouting into a void. (laughs) But I'm in really good company with other Native journalists at Indian Country Today and Native News Network and Indians.com. I think between all of us, we're all we're just trying to to elevate some stories and elevate some voices that that aren't gonna, you know, have a made-for-TV movie or end up on a true crime podcast. Some of the voices include activists from networks like Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, who have a Canadian and U.S. division. Vojtěch Hestali represents MMIW USA. She explains what the failure of addressing the systemic violence towards Indigenous women has done to many communities. When you lose those people, you're losing part of your culture. You're losing someone who had knowledge of our culture. You're losing someone who had extreme value to people. And you're losing someone who played a role in their community. And so when that occurs, you know, suddenly there's this gap that can't be filled in the community, in the family, in the relationship between one to the other. This is a something that's been going on for centuries now. Native women getting taken, being killed. That was, you think about the massacres that occurred in the 1800s and 1700s. It's always been that way. So there's always been that kind of pain. And it contributes a lot to you know, just significant trauma within our people. For Hashtali, the increased news attention over the past few years is positive, but limited. The majority of them didn't get attention at all. And even now, it's if a Native woman goes missing, there's not going to be a specific article written most of the time, you know, or there's not going to be anything on TV saying like, hey, you know, look for this person. But then all of a sudden, all these journalists, and no offense, I don't mean any offense by this, but all these journalists are coming in and they're talking about the issue as a whole, which is really good, but we're still not getting the attention 
on specific cases. And I'm hoping that that will gradually begin to change, but it's a matter of getting the police to care and getting local news reporters and stuff to care. One example Hashtali gives is of a woman who wasn't even identified by name after her body was found. There was a woman who got was found in a river, actually not very far from where I live, and her name is simply Jane Doe 1976 of Davidson County, Tennessee. She hasn't ever been identified. So I think about cases like that, and it's like there's so much that could have been done that wasn't done. 91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Why do cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women continue to go unsolved? The News and Public Affairs Director of KBCS, Yuko Kadema, agrees with Hashtali that reporting on topics like missing and murdered Indigenous women must start with the people. When you hear someone telling their story about how they lost someone or what what that meant to them, what did they do to try to find their the, the person that they lost, it humanizes the experience so you can get a better sense of what does it mean when someone does go missing, what is the impact. Unfortunately, these stories are often overlooked or have less impact because news cycles tend to stick to what's familiar. Just really actually caring about what's going on in the local community, reading up on it, and being in the community, like hanging out at coffee shops and seeing people and, and being in communities where that aren't normally covered. I think a lot of these communities don't get covered because they're so different than what, what the journalist feels comfortable with. Monica Brain. I don't know if there's a solution, to be perfectly honest, other than the fact that every time a woman and really anyone who's Native goes missing, it would be nice if it was as serious as a college student who went missing and when they were on a Caribbean vacation and now there's like six made-for-TV movies about it. But the way that we're positioned in society, it's just not that interesting not that important. The way Indigenous people in Canada and the US are positioned by society, as Brain and Hashtadi explain, is complex and often not understood by the general public, especially in relation to how jurisdictions operate. You know that meme of that guy? I think it's, I don't even know what TV show it's from, but it's this guy and he's standing in front of a board and there's like all this crazy stuff And there's like yarn that connects to a bunch of different things. And he's got the crazy eyes and he's trying to explain like a conspiracy theory or something like that. That's how I feel about trying to understand jurisdiction in Indian country and explain it in a concise, you know, like journalist friendly way. It's complicated and changes depending on the country, state and tribe. For example, in the US, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has police officers to enforce federal and tribal laws within what's known as Indian country. However, some tribes have their own established police, such as the Navajo Nation Police. But when crimes occur on native land or Indian country that involve non-native people, other law enforcement, such as the FBI, are often tasked to respond. The bureaucratic crossover causes huge delays in investigations and oftentimes major shortcomings. 
federal courts usually drop the ball. FBI usually drops the ball because they don't consider these cases a priority. It's not a big deal to them. And that's the same for a lot of missing cases. You know, if you're not a certain demographic racially and as far as your class status goes, often the cops aren't going to be looking very hard for you, period. Furthermore, attitudes of law enforcement can be problematic. Native women are stereotyped as being drunks, just like all Native people are. A lot by the police, a lot of them are stereotyped as being prostitutes in certain areas. Stereotyping Indigenous people also affects how stories are covered in the news, even when journalists have good intentions. Naja even put out this bingo card that has like all the similar tropes that you find in those kinds of articles on it. And um, I have one on my wall right now and I, I went through an article one time and I almost bingoed with it. It, you know, it has things like alcoholism, sacred, you know, spirit animals. It was just, just a bunch of really terrible things that really have no business in without context, without complexity, without understanding. Someone who's on the forefront of collecting accurate data and speaking to news media about missing and murdered Indigenous women is Anita Lucchese. She is a survivor of abuse and trafficking. Because of negative experiences of being re-traumatised through news coverage of her story, we will not include further details of her experience abuse here. We will rather focus on her expertise, activism and interactions with journalists. After being frustrated with the lack of concise data, Lucchese started the Sovereign Bodies Institute to create a database and to be a, quote, home for generating new knowledge and understandings of how Indigenous nations and communities are impacted by gender and sexual violence. I started the database about five years ago. I left my abuser in July of 2015, and I was... I'm a survivor of abuse and trafficking. Um, so when I left that, um, I moved to a whole new state that I'd never been before. I didn't know anybody. I started my life completely over. And the only thing that I took with me when I moved was my master's degree. Um, I had finished all my coursework, but I was still working on my thesis. And I used my thesis as a way to kind of unpack a lot of the violence that I had been through in the last year. And my thesis was on how we can use maps to tell stories of genocide, specifically in Indigenous communities. I needed a good working number of how many cases there were in the U.S. and Canada for that map. And what I found was there's lots of numbers out there for Canada, but none of them match. And at the time, five years ago, there was no numbers for the U.S. I just started putting all those lists together in a spreadsheet, and I was kind of naive in thinking that there would be a start and an end, and that that project would be completed easily. Uh, and now, five years later, it's become my life's work. It's survivor-led. It's something that is a deep commitment, um, even when it's painful or challenging. Lucchese's work has garnered news attention, which she says she continues to do in order to help other survivors and victims' families. But the work is tiring, and journalists don't always approach the topic with care. Between the constant stream of interviews where I was asked the same questions over and over and over again, and like constant public rehashing of my story um, in ways that I don't consent to. And then I was doing a lot of speaking engagements. I was traveling quite a bit. And so I was going from motel to motel to like rehash my story. I don't get to tell my story 
in the way that I really want to, I have to say the story that's appealing to media or to policymakers or that's not going to get me arrested. It's exhausting. People don't bother to like put in the time of creating thoughtful questions or put in the time to get to know me so that they can think of what those really thoughtful questions might be because they'd rather ask kind of the same predictable questions that everybody's been asking for years. And then there isn't a lot of relationship building that happens there. And there's really important stories that could get out that don't because people kind of take the easy route. As someone working in the industry, Brain says there are initiatives that news organisations can make to change the problematic ways that Indigenous people are covered in the news. The number one thing you can do is put Native people in your newsroom. That's not a guarantee, but if you have a Native person there sitting there saying, oh, what do Native people think about this issue? Whether it is missing and murdered Indigenous women or it's baseball or it's, you know, any number of things, just to have that different perspective makes journalism better. The next thing you can do if, if, you know, I mean, newsrooms are tight right now and maybe there isn't space to hire people, then you can bring on consultants. I give my phone number out to absolutely every journalist I meet and tell them, let me help you connect. Let me use the resources and the experience that I've had through the years to try and connect with, you know, Native people so you can have more Native folks as sources in your stories and things like that. And then just do the work, you know, build the relationships. If you're covering, if you, you know, find out what tribe is closest in your area and start building relationships with them and covering them in a way that's effective and useful. Kodama adds that being detached through journalistic norms of objectivity can also be a limitation when covering these stories. I feel like just like in science, you know, there's this kind of, you know, you have to be, you have to separate yourself, you know, not, not have a, uh, an agenda and be neutral and all of this. Yet these kind of stories, I'm a woman, <laughs> I'm a woman of color. Um, you know, these kinds of things impact me when people get to, you know, I'm the professional journalist and I'm coming at you with, you know, I just want this information. I'm leaving, you know, okay, what is it? Okay, I got it. Gone. It it makes it kind of sad for the journalist as well as for the community. I do feel that we do have a responsibility as human beings to be human in our work and to connect with our work. For Lou Casey, one of the most troubling experiences with journalists happened when she arranged for news media to attend a vigil for a tribe elder's daughter five years after the daughter was murdered. They had been trying for some time to get news coverage of the case, and Lucchese was meant to meet up with the news crew at Billings, Montana airport and travel together to meet the elder and her family two hours away. They left me. They left me in Billings, Montana, which is like a super unsafe place to be if you're a Native woman. They left me alone with a suitcase in Billings, Montana at night. Like I I was completely stranded and I had no ride to the rest. And they went to go talk to the family without me. They showed up at this elder's door unannounced early in the morning, the day of the vigil and asked for an interview on her daughter's grave. She, this elder like thought like she was just I think she was so emotionally overwhelmed by what she knew was going to happen that day that she just kind of went along with it. 
and she thought it'd be good to get her daughter's story out and if this is what she had to do okay so she took them to her daughter's grave they did the interview and then they left and they didn't stay for the vigil and that family never heard from them again and then when the news coverage came out like a few days later they had completely cut that story. They didn't mention her daughter's name once in the entire like 15 minute news coverage. So it was so traumatizing and triggering for that family, deeply disrespectful, but that's the kind of behavior we see. And then it gets legitimized as like, oh, well, my editor's making me do this or, oh, I'm up against a deadline or, oh, journalism's just like this. No, actually, like it shouldn't be and it doesn't have to be. Another aspect of journalism that's difficult for survivors of sexual abuse is the insistence of using named sources in order to be considered credible. One of the things that would be important for journalists to learn, not just how to work with survivors, but how to include survivor narratives in a way that still protects their anonymity. Because I was always told by writers that like, well, your story is so powerful, we need to include it. But like, there's no way you need to just be out there, basically. And to me, that's the easy way out for them when it's actually not that hard to say. And I talked to a survivor located in California who shared this, 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 and this. I think there's ways to do it pretty simply, but it doesn't happen. So making sure that journalists communicate the rights of survivors as they're interviewing them helps a lot. Part of journalists' problematic news coverage is not challenging government initiatives that so far fall short of eradicating systemic violence against Indigenous women, which then leaves activists alone to raise their voices. Not exactly easy when considering who it is they must stand up to. I'm not confident in any government initiative because none of them are led by families through survivors. And, and it shows in how they carry themselves and how they do the work. Um, I think Operation Lady Justice is at best haphazard. I do think that, you know, the movement as a whole, um, we're growing, we're growing in really exciting ways. And I think Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people are really finding their power. And it's an exciting time to be a part of that. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful about the path ahead for us as movement leaders. I would hope, especially for these these kind of stories around missing and murdered Indigenous women, that they would feel empowered in being able to speak and metabolize some of their, their story. Thank you for listening to The Know How. That was the fifth and last in this special series, Reporting Injustice. It was presented by Dr. Glenda Cooper and Dr. Lindsay Blumel and produced by Atina Dimitrova. In this series, we've tried to shine a light on stories that made a difference, that changed the way we think, and also the women journalists who brought these stories to public attention. To hear the other episodes in the series, which covered Bill Cosby's accusers, the Windrush scandal, the Grenfell Tower disaster, and domestic abuse by police officers, or to get in touch with us with ideas that you think we should cover in future, please go to our website, theknowhowpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Know How Podcast, or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast. Thanks again for listening.